This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that, unlike Commonwealth Bank, didn't lose $1.5 billion this week. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, Dr. Nirvan Mahati. G'day, Doc. How are you? G'day, Captain. I am uh, not $1.0 rich or poor. <laughs> That's a tough old week, isn't it? We will talk about that. We're going to do our weekly short, very short, as short as we can, coronavirus check-in, and look at the implications on the market, of course. We'll leave the rest of that stuff for everybody else, but there are some decent things that are happening in the news, and we want to cover those for our listeners. More capital raisings, mate, your favourite thing. At least four new companies on the list. He's shaking his head in the background, fools, just so you know. Uh, we've also got the race for Virgin hotting up. Is there anything like bloody eyes to a honey, beast to a honeypot, like an airline sale? Just for number of number of bidders who've turned up for this thing compared to any other business sale ever is just phenomenal. We'll talk about that. We'll also talk about well, I'll try to rant too much, mate, but I can't promise anything. People accessing their superannuation early. We've talked about the stupidity of the policy. I don't mind saying that without being political. I can be policy focused and say it's an absolutely crazy, mad, terrible policy. And unfortunately, we now know the cost of that or at least the beginnings of that. And we'll work out whether or not one investor who says we're in the biggest bubble since 1999 is going to be proven right or whether it's all just hot air. Should we get on with it? Let's do it. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, buddy, let's start in with the state of the market. I mean, we call it our coronavirus check-in. I probably shouldn't because, frankly, we've all, we're all sick of talking about it. But there obviously are impacts, economic, company, otherwise, from this particular one. So let's try and reel off some of what's been happening this week and we'll see if we can inform and educate our listeners a little bit in terms of our thoughts on what's going on and why. The big story, mate, was Commonwealth Bank. Now, this is a, we'll, have, we'll have a story a little bit later about share prices and, and company news. Commonwealth Bank this week revealed a $1.5 billion provision for future bad debts. Now, that's what every business, particularly banks, are supposed to do. If you think your customers aren't going to pay you back at some future time, that's current customers, you take a provision. You say, okay, well, look, I'm going to book a loss at some future point because a certain portion of my customers aren't going to pay, and that can be the plumber who's going to, you know, trace someone for a bill or Commonwealth Bank who are hoping desperately that its business and, and, and the residential customers pay their loans back. $1.5 billion this week says they won't, or at least $1.5 billion of them won't. The shares were up, mate. How is that good news? Uh, you know, when did the market become rash? Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, maybe the shares are up because, uh, you know, people expected worse. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it, to me, like the banks are uh, are sort of that instrument which is going to show the real effect, you know, in a couple of quarters, right? So this is only the beginning as far as the banks are concerned, right? Right now, there's a lot of money being com- coming in. There's a lot of stimulus being pushed. Uh, and, you know, but yet people are asking for deferrals, right? And then yeah. the real effect um, shows up later on when when you realize that what jobs are permanently gone, what businesses are permanently impaired, um, and, and so on. So at that point, you know, I, I think it becomes more serious. So I don't know. I'm not a big, you know, I think the banks are doing the right thing. I, I, uh, I, I give, you know, give them credit for that. But right. the banks were pretty expensive previously. Um, and they still look expensive. I mean, you know, like there's no reason again for these banks to be trading at, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18 times earnings. Uh, it's been my view that, you know, these are, you know, it's a 
good businesses, but you know, maybe 12 times earnings or something like that, normalized. It's what I would be paying for these banks. Um, yeah, and so yeah, it doesn't surprise me people are running, you know, maybe giving them, uh, you know, going back and buying some shares, but um, yeah, it's, it's not my kind of thing. It is, a, it is a tough one. It's, I mean, to your point about the market being rational, part of this story is, of course, that market hates uncertainty. And there's probably two parts to the $1.5 billion bill. The first is, thank goodness it wasn't worse, quite frankly, because there may have been some people out there who said, look, we don't, this could be $2 billion, it could be $3 billion, who knows, let's be careful. And so to some degree, the old market hates uncertainty thing and the combination of, well, so uncertainty generally, so they know something now, so you can kind of price that in. The other thing is, as I said, it'd be expected to be worse, um, then you know it wasn't as bad, so maybe you go and buy the shares. Those are two reasons, and we see that in earnings season. We've said this many times in the past. It is often just simply a the move is relative to previous expectations, not the actual bad news. And people, you know, it's it's an easy mistake to make as an investor to expect news is bad, therefore shares must fall. The the badness of the news to mm-hmm. horribly torture the phrase um, is really what's at, at stake here. Every share, every investor should be looking forward anyway and saying in the future I expect X or at least some range of outcomes around X. Uh, and if it's better than you expect, then share should be higher. Every, you know, I mean, in a worst case scenario, if you, you, know, you expect, I don't know, let's, let's pick up a flight center. If you expect flight center to go broke, then it's worth zero. If it's not gonna go broke, all of a sudden it's worth more than that. That that change in expectations is what drives share prices. And that's probably the, the CBA story. I will leave the other bit of CBA news to the end, maybe at the end of this particular section, only because we need to get through some other content before I let you loose, or I take you off the chain and let you rant about house prices. Let's, uh, let's go to the US for a second. And uh, the story there was interesting. And this is, again, an expectation story. Shares fell. So, again, we're recording this Thursday morning, as we are wont to do. Overnight, Jerome Powell, the US Fed chair, came out and said, oh, look, this could be a long and prolonged downturn. You know, it could be, it could be tough. Things aren't great. And the market hated it. And I kind of thought to myself, I'm not entirely sure what the market was expecting. I mean, again, in this case... US shares were down about 1.75% last I saw it and how they closed out. Um, I was looking before the market closed this morning. But uh, like, uh, who's, who is, yes, okay, the CBA news, fine, fine. Who is not honestly surprised, who is surprised by this statement from Powell, which to me is just, I mean, again, you can expect CBA's bad debt to be two or three billion, and maybe it's one and a half, maybe that's less bad. Who didn't expect Powell to come out and say, this could be tough? Yeah, that's surprising. I think maybe what it's a combination of things. Like you know, the market is kind of used to, um, you know, the market is used to certain language. We will do anything to keep the economy sure. going, right? That's kind of the language the market likes to hear. <laughs> uh, he didn't use that language. Instead, he said, "Well, this could be bad for a long time." So, um, you know, the market hated that. You know, that causes uncertainty. A lot of people, you know, they're trading in and out of stocks <laughs> based on what Powell is saying. And I think, you know, Powell also squashed this idea that, you know, they can go to negatives um, yeah. because, you know, um, several other countries are using negative rates and he basically crushed that, you know, saying no, uh, he doesn't think so. Uh, you know, again, rates too are, you know, a relative game, right? I mean, uh, my rate could be minus one, somebody else else's rate could be minus two, <laughs> or my rate could be <laughs> plus one, and somebody else's, oh, you know, rate could be minus you know, one, right? (laughs) That's still relatively speaking the same thing. Um, Mm. Because then, you know, the other things move, right? The dollar moves and the currencies move and things like that. So, um, yeah, it's interesting, I think, that uh, one way to think about this is maybe the growing consensus that um, the recovery that people, people have been, there was this this, 
expectation, I think, built in that the recovery is going to be very swift or what they call, the, you know, nowadays uh, letters are in, uh, in vogue, right? So uh, <laughs> the, the, the in vogue letter was V, the quick recovery, you know, very sharp the, dip and then the V-shaped recovery. And uh, yeah, V-shaped recovery. And there's now, now there is uh, a new one that's out. That's, uh, you know, the Nike swoosh recovery, which is basically <laughs> a fall. Then, you know, uh, and a slow rise, but yeah, a rise for sure. Uh, so the Nike swoosh recovery, and there's, you know, I think there's a growing consensus towards the Nike swoosh uh, recovery model. Uh, and, you know, if, if yeah, there were, so anyway, so I mean, if anybody's expecting a quick recovery, then I think, you know, they, they got, you know, a bucket of cold water full of ice <laughs> poured on the, uh, on the head by Powell, and that really didn't help. I gotta say, I haven't heard the swoosh on, mate. That's a new one for me, so I haven't been paying close enough attention. Uh, our listeners will know, of course, last week Warren Hogan talked about the W-shaped recovery, the kind of the, the kind of you know the pent-up demand coming out, giving us a little bit of that that first bit of the W, and then as you already highlighted earlier in this particular podcast, the future job losses or future issues that may well see growth kind of drop back again a bit before it starts to genuinely recover. It's also worth probably saying, and I'm an optimist by nature, as as you well know, and our listeners well know, that. These things, you know, they're terrible while they happen, absolutely, but they do end. And I think that's the other thing is, you know, when you've been through a recession, two quarters negative growth is terrible, uh, but it's only six months, right? And so, yes, there are longer lasting impacts. Unemployment will take years to come back. Um, so I'm not saying it's all over. That's You're right about the swoosh or the slow recovery, but it's also, you know, this too shall pass is also worth remembering, particularly in the darkest times when pessimism reigns. All right, let me... Yeah, let me I mean, the other thing I would go. say is that, you know, I just quickly adding one thing. You know, the other thing is that, irrespective of what happens, right? The there are going to be winners in certain businesses. Yes. There are going to be losers in certain businesses. So some businesses are going to do well, which is not any different from what happens during normal times, right? You know, yeah, some right. businesses do well, some don't. Um, and therefore, if you're from an investing point of view, you still always find opportunities that you are know, likely to do well. So. Um, that, that's sort of the investing bent is that, you know, it really doesn't matter whether it's the swish or the W or the V or the Z, or, you know, I really actually don't care. <laughs> it, it we have really an E-shaped recovery, we're all in trouble, is all I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mate, I, you've almost stolen my thunder. I'm glad you stopped because I do have that. At the end of this particular section, firstly, though, let me get to another two bits and pieces. The new news of 10 people in a restaurant. Now, we don't want to necessarily get too far into health policy, too far into, you know, predictions or, or whatever, but the... You know, around the country, there are different restrictions being lifted at different times. The Northern Territory, I think, are they all at the pub by now? If not, it must have been this Friday, maybe they're going to the pub. Um, so they're, they're in Clover. The, the, the West Australians are travelling locally. South Australians now can travel locally as well. In New South Wales, where we are, the 10-person at a restaurant or cafe rule comes into place tomorrow. Again, probably today, as listeners are listening to this, on Friday the 15th. Um, it's, a, it's a funny old number, right? It kind of gives people permission to start doing some stuff. And maybe that's the point, right? Maybe it's the signaling rather than the reality. But 10 people in a cafe when half of them are staff is tough. 10 people in a full service restaurant for a two hour meal. I mean, yeah, some of those prices are expensive, but I don't know how you pay the bills, the rent, the, the, the linen, the food, the staff. We can only serve 10 people. I mean, I guess it's better than nothing. And maybe it does get things back and running again. Maybe it starts to pick a little bit of momentum up for the businesses. I guess it's better than nothing for a lot of people, but it maybe it doesn't feel like quite enough. Is that because it's a signal from government that this is just a step in the process? Are they are they not thought well enough about it, or is it simply just the health reality that there is no other choice? 
Um, so I'll, I'll not go into the public policy aspect because, you know, again, um, I might get uh, into an area that really, uh, you know, I might rather, might not be the right person to comment on, uh, you know, <laughs> despite however much I would read about it. So <laughs> I'll step, step, step aside from that. The, um, the, yeah, I think the ten percent rule I understand is for patrons. So ten patrons can be there at any given point in time. Okay. Um, and and you know by my average calculation, if you say an average family say size of four, that basically wow. means you can fill two and a half uh, tables, right? <laughs> um, now, I think that two and a half tables is something for a business that's currently operating. So if some a business is currently operating and doing takeaways, All I right. think they can afford to you know take the two and a half. It doesn't help a business which has actually closed. Because mm-hmm. if they were not able to manage takeaways, um, and you know maybe they had a big, big, uh, you know, um, seating area that they, you know, they need to serve, and they mm-hmm. can only do two and a half tables, well, this doesn't help them. So yeah. uh, there's a fixed cost component that you're talking about. So from a business point of view, all I can say is that you know the fixed cost, you know, is going to you know there's a certain fixed cost for doing something, including say running uh, the set of tables, right? Um, and you know, it's, if it is ten dollars for two tables, that's probably only twelve dollars for like five tables, right? Right. Exactly, <laughs> it doesn't yeah. go. It doesn't. It doesn't go up linearly. Uh, right. So that's the pro- I think the problem here, uh, from a business point of view, uh, irrespective, you know, maybe there's a solid perspective or a for a public policy or a health management point of view. But from a business point of view, I think this doesn't help a lot of businesses that have been yeah. affected in that way. It's probably a bonus for those people. You know those cafes which have been doing all right, managing with takeaways and so on. So they have they got a little bit of a bonus. It seems to almost, in my mind, it seems to be that those maybe winning is not the right word, but those that are succeeding currently yeah. can continue succeeding. Those that have been left behind um, are not benefited by this. There's still a while to go. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, still a while to go. So I mean, maybe that's natural selection at work or whatever. But you know, I, I thought it was an interesting thing. Um, including the you know the, the regulation that says that you know clubs for example can start in 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 uh, in house dining right again yeah. how do you do in house dining with ten people if you were not already doing something before exactly. that <laughs> so it's a bit of a it's a bit of a, it's it's an interesting one I I'd like to see how this unfolds actually indeed it is a, it is a funny story I mean you think about some of the cabinets clubs. I mean, the, the Penrith Panthers club here in in, in South Wales for example this massive 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 establishment. You know, you can imagine 10 people having to walk in the front door and then up the escalators around the corner of this just basically dead business with nothing going on to some restaurant down the back. And, you know, I'm not bagging pants. I've never been there. But there's some big, big leagues clubs, big, you know, return service leagues clubs. Um, you know, the, the, the restaurant is a small portion of that. The rest of the things are going to be shut down. You know, the bars are closed. The poker machines are closed. The event rooms are closed. The car park's going to have four, four cars and 10 people. It doesn't, it doesn't seem very likely, does it? Yeah, it yeah, it's it's just it seems like a, yeah, it almost seems tokenish, which is what you you yeah. know you are referring to, right? And maybe it's a signal, maybe whatever it is. Like, I don't know. Like, I mean, if people can go and sit in the in the in the beach, <laughs> then maybe you can you know, maybe you can sit more than ten people in a restaurant as long as you know it's some square footage rule is uh, rule is satisfied, right? I mean, whatever yeah. the four meter square yeah. rule is satisfied, right? I mean, you know, whatever. You see this this number of ten is a bit arbitrary in that sense. Yeah. Um, but maybe it's just a signal. I, I don't know. And maybe things will change. I, th- I think a signal, I think also to some degree, just the, the, the reality that 
they, they need to see what happens, right? Health-wise, whatever increase in patronage across the economy, whether that's retail stores, cafes, you open a little bit, you see kind of what the, the case count looks like as a result. It's, it's probably far more about that than the individual establishments, right? It's just trying to work out how do we add 10 or 15% to social movements and then, and then kind of measure the measure the results. Doc, I will say, mate, your, your signal's breaking up a little bit as we chat. So, um, listen, we are doing this on Zoom. Our apologies if the if the uh, tech goes a little bit awry. We're catching almost everything you're saying, Doc. There's a couple of gaps. So, please bear with us. We hope, uh, like the like the restrictions or like the easing of restrictions, maybe, eventually, hopefully, Doc and I will be back in the same room again. So, we do appreciate you hanging with us. Uh, we know it can be a little bit frustrating if there is dropouts, but so far we've heard all of Doc. Uh, just with a bit of a bit of a gap, a bit of a delay in some of it. So stick with us. We promise we'll we'll get there when we can. Mate, last one. Actually, I'll oh, I'll give you two. So you mentioned companies on the rise, mate. This is interesting. Um, I'll give a, a, a slight little hint uh, for those who are subscribed to the CanStar uh, Money Mondays newsletter. I'm doing a guest column for them on Monday, um, and it actually wasn't my idea to talk about this talk. You raised it, but it was exactly on the same topic. The stocks that are doing well because of coronavirus. And two, you mentioned to me this morning. Uh, certainly I saw on the AFR, Afterpay and Kogan. You mentioned Afterpay. Uh, Kogan doing well as well. There is, I mean, just so, so I guess the, the, the investing lesson here, the investing kind of approach, um, there are businesses who are doing well. So there's probably three lots of businesses, right? There's those who are doing badly because of coronavirus, and that's most companies with, with any sort of retail exposure, or even just discretionary business spending, right? Business investment, same thing. There are those who are doing you know, okay because they're just not corona impacted. Um, and I guess I would put in that vein kind of the supermarkets have had a bit of a bump, I suppose, for toilet paper, but realistically kind of, you know, business is going to be roughly business as usual. Telstra is probably not a lot different, maybe a couple of extra mobile plans with work from home, but, you know, it is what it is. Um, then there are businesses that are actually doing well, specifically well because of coronavirus. And I want to get your thoughts, mate, if, on the businesses themselves if you want to, but also just that, that general sense of, how do you think about businesses that are getting some benefit from Corona? Because if we fall to, for, you know, there, there are going to be traps right now. You know, we talk about value traps a lot. This might be a growth trap. I'm just inventing that phrase because a business is doing well now because of Corona that in six months time is back to a previous normal. If you're buying, you know, today's business, because you think it's going to be great forever. Um, if and when that business falters back because, well, you know, it was just a temporary bump and that's great. You take it when you get it. If you make face masks or hand sanitizers or toilet paper, yeah, you're doing well this quarter, but man, if you're buying a toilet paper company because you expect that coronavirus is going to, you know, meaningfully improve their profits for years to come, you're in for a rude shock. How do you think about that approach when it comes to trying to just work out which businesses are benefiting or, or being hurt temporarily versus permanently and how do you, how you approach that when it comes to valuation or the companies you're prepared to buy and the prices you're paying? Oh, that's a tough question. Um, uh, so, so, well, like, so broadly, um, one class you've already hinted, right? So there's a, there's a class of business which has a you know, large fixed cost for operating, which have been told not to operate. And those businesses um, are hurting right now. And uh, one of the problems with many of those businesses is that they are pretty much also slow growing businesses, right? So, so there's actually pretty long term because you think about, you think about, so, so an example might be, take any reta retail operation in Australia, right? Yep. Now retail operation can either grow by stealing share from people, uh, from other retailers, for example, yep. or, or and some natural growth because of population growth and things like that. Right. 
new people coming into the system and things like that. Now, if, if you structure those two things, if you think about it, sort of a, you know, a tried and tested retailer, well, they've got a lot of pressure going on on them because A, the current people are not spending enough because, you know, people have pulled back on their, on their, on their spending and no new people are coming into the system. So, you know, the migration has basically come to a halt, right? right. So these guys are going to continue to hurt. Uh, pretty much maybe over the medium term, right? It's, you know, and it's really, really a fist fight right now to try to get share from each other. So of course, right. somebody could win, but you know, in a fist fight, really, everybody gets hurt. Somebody more, somebody less. Yeah, it's a fist fight, right? I mean, somebody gets hurt. It's like, you know, you go yeah, to right. a bar and fight while somebody's going to get hurt. Maybe both <laughs> people get, somebody's going to get hurt now, somebody's going to get hurt later, but right. that happens. So I think that's the problem. I call this the old guard problem. A lot of these businesses are the old guard and it is really tough. Now, if if I put Kogan as an example in that retailer bu- bucket, I could look at it two ways. I could either look at Kogan as a different business, completely different business, because it has a very different cost structure to typical retailers, right? Because it's, it's basically an online uh, retailer, right. right? So its cost structure is very different from uh, that of, uh, say, you know, another retailer, uh, large retailer in in with with shops in a mall, right? Yeah. Or even if I want to look at it as a retailer, I could say that if, I, if there's a structural shift and there's a fist fight, maybe this guy has the highest chance of winning because of its cost structure, right? It allows it to be more aggressive. Uh, you know, it could aggressively discount or take share if it wanted to, for example. Um, so, so I think there's some natural. Then, then the other thing I think to think about is are there certain behavioral pattern changes that are likely to happen, right? So behavioral pattern changes don't happen that easily. So, I mean, one of the things we talk about is, are people going to go back to Disney's um, uh, parks? Yes, they're going to go back to Disney's parks. I don't have any doubt about that. (laughs) The question to ask is, uh, Andrew would not like, uh, Andrew Leggett, our colleague, would not like this uh, analogy, but, (laughs) but the question really is, are they going to go back in the same numbers? That's number one, as they did in the past. And number two, are the numbers actually going to rise? Yeah. Right. So if you think about the theme parks in Australia, for example, well, there are no tourists coming in. So, I mean, there's going to be some, you know, there's, you know, there's only local tourism likely to happen in the near term. Well, those theme parks are therefore not going to have much traffic. Yeah. Right. So it's going to take, so for certain businesses, it's going to take a long time to actually get back to, you know, call it the pre-pandemic level. So I think that's the, that's the thing. It's almost like mm-hmm. an old guard, new guard sort of thing that I, that I like to think. Then, you know, then after we've talked about this before, I think the other thing to think about a business is if, even if something is getting a temporary bump, the thing I like to ask is, is it grow? What sort of base does it grow from? Right. So if you if a Woolies gets a temporary bump, well, Woolies has pretty much you know, fifty percent of Australia shops at Woolies, fifty percent shops at Coles. Uh, you know, they're fighting for like, okay, can I be forty nine and you be fifty one and so on and so forth, right? And it's our forty eight, fifty two. Yeah, yeah. That's the fight going on, right? Yeah. Uh, but after this fight is different. Afterpay is basically saying, well, I've only got these many number of people. Can I get all those other people who are not using my services right now, right? So it's, it's a different uh, market, different type. Of, it's, it's a growth opportunity. You're trying to basically increase market share. So by taking share from other people, it's not, a, it's not established uh, mm-hmm. you know, oligopoly in that sense, right? So I think th- those yeah. sort of companies tend to generally do well. Of course, there's a price factor, all of that priced in, into uh, the shares. And Afterpay, I've always said this, I think Afterpay 
has the potential to be one of the largest companies on the ASX, but it is yeah. also commensurately one of the riskiest companies we have on the ASX because after <laughs> all, it's basically a credit, it's a, yeah. it's a, it's a credit company, right? And credit companies yeah. can, uh, you know, uh, can go bust in many different ways. Things can go wrong in many different ways as it becomes bigger, the amount of credit pool increases, or credit, you know, credit risk increases yeah. in that sense. So uh, all of those things can happen, but you know, uh, they have a mammoth opportunity in front of them, and you know, they've you know they've got some big supporters landing on their door, including things like you know the Chinese behemoth mm-hmm. uh, Tencent. So all of those things are good. You know, they've got a management team with uh, top flight people, including from places like Facebook and so on, who have uh, come and joined them. So. Uh, I think things are going well for them. Things are going well for Kogan. Um, what I will say is that anybody buying shares right now into anything that has gone up a lot should be willing to expect a lot of volatility, right? Because typically if something has shot up a lot, you know, there's always that, you know, tendency of people to, oh, this has shot up. You know, there's going to be a lot of talk around it. This has gone up and this, you know, that creates a lot of volatility. Things go up, things go down and, and, and so on. So just be prepared for that. And, and, and then, of course, you know, when this pandemic, you know, subsides people, you know, there's going to be a little bit of change of behavior that's going to cause all sorts of other uh, reactions. But I think, you know, certain companies are designed to win, I think, and, and these two, I think, are great ones. Right. Quick follow-up question, we'll move on. My, my, so I'm not enough to pay shareholder, I'm not as bullish as you are, but I acknowledge the absolute upside potential. I mean, if you are literally taking on the world payment <laughs> networks and you win, there is phenomenal, you know, you add zero, a couple of zeros to the share price without too much trouble if things go exceptionally well, right? So I get that. What I'm, what I'm a little bit fascinated by is the share price now is higher than it was pre-crisis. And while Afterpay will definitely benefit from the online um, sales, I, I can't imagine that's a net benefit right now. It seems to me, a uh, share getting, I want to say carried away, because again, it could be worth well more than this, but just between February 20 and now, for that to be actually you know, higher and absolute, COVID is selling literally more product online. That makes some sense, right? At least I'm a COVID shareholder, by the way, so I'm probably biased. So take that for what it's worth. And pick any other business that's growing, not, not necessarily COVID, if you get anything. But in Afterpay's case, just it, it seems like a lot of opt- optimism almost in spite of the decline, given that a decent proportion of his business is physical retail. How do you how do you square that circle for yourself? No, so a, a, a decent, actually the larger portion is online. Right. For Afterpay. So, uh, I mean, you could basically apply the same arguments that you would apply to, you know, Kogan doing very well uh, or Amazon doing very well because, you know, there's this shift to online and that's yeah. sort of been accelerated. And therefore, all of those arguments um, also apply to uh, to Afterpay. You know, yeah. the large base. In fact, their business is really online to offline or online to re, you know brick and mortar right so they basically go online first okay. and then you know um and oh, okay, right. there. yeah so 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 i think they've benefited from the online um the, the online sort of presence and i think it's basically the same sort of boat that's lifting all of them yeah okay I just thought there was there didn't seem to be enough it, that, yeah. i mean it's online it's offline business must fall right by definition even if the online grows it just felt like net net Reverses the extra positive now, even even allowing for that. It, it, I mean, again, I'm not, I'm not needed on the company or the stock. I don't think it should necessarily crash. I'm not, I mean, it did crash. It went to nine dollars, then back to forty four or something. It's been a hell of a ride. Um, it, it'd be like you know Telstra and fixed line and mobile again. Terrible analogy, but you know, two parts of the business. Even if one part's growing, the other part is at least for now shrinking. I would have expected if you said it was worth forty, not you personally. If someone said it was worth forty bucks pre-crisis. 
let's assume, okay, online's growing, offline's failing. Maybe it's worth 35 now or something else. Just It just struck me that a net positive, given the decline in, in offline, even if it is a smaller portion, portion as you say, just, just felt like investors were maybe, I, I don't know, maybe looking for a place that are optimism. I'm not sure. So, I mean, you know, the only thing I'll say is this, right? So, if you think about it this way, another way to think about this is, let's assume Australia's retail, brick and mortar retail, let's say, is going to suffer badly, right? Um, and let's say that Afterpay was previously accepted at, say, 30% of the stores. Right. And not, not in 70 Now, those 70% actually really need Afterpay. <laughs> yeah, because, right, okay. because the physical retail is yeah. basically in, you know, in, in that sort of vortex that is very support, hard to yeah. get out. So yeah. actually, yeah, and life support, right? So basically life support for poor quality businesses is giving uh, Afterpay an opportunity and saying, well, look, you know, I can be your life support. I can actually give you that right. support that you need. So uh, I, I think the two things that I think is very important to realize with growth companies is is A, the opportunity. As long as you have got a long runway and you've got a value proposition that makes sense, then uh, I think, you know, sort of sky's the limit in that sense, right? If you can't execute on that promise, um, with all the risks of attendance, risks of competition and so on, I think that is where the opportunity is. So, you know, and if you think about it, the other way to think about this is the value proposition has been demonstrated to work in Australia, New Zealand, yeah. to some extent in the US, yeah. uh, now to some extent in the UK. But then you are opening up, essentially this value proposition now becomes even more valuable to the brick and mortar retail globally. So I think the their global, I think, expansion, basically, in a way, coronavirus has given them the ticket to, you know, accelerate global uh, okay. expansion. So, so that's the bull case, right? Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think, yeah, I wouldn't, again, I, I call it high risk, uh, largely because yeah. of the credit part, not because of the execution, not because of what they're doing, um, okay. and, and so on. Um, I think it's, it's a good right. business. We're going to finish, thank you, Matt, we're going to finish our, our coronavirus uh, section. It's longer than I expected, but some good conversation. I'm going to give you exactly 60 seconds, not a second more, to talk about Commonwealth Bank's uh, forecast. It's most pessimistic forecast that house prices could fall 32% between now and the end of the pandemic. My, uh, well, I'll make it very short. I think Commonwealth Bank should be paying me the big bucks for making those forecasts. I've been making those forecasts for a long time. Um, <laughs> you, you know, well, it's, it's, it's common sense. If you have this high debt, less disposable income and now even less disposable income those sort of things happen take away migration uh you know the the profit boosters uh for that sector it's almost like a pyramid right you know you, you somebody buys and then they're expecting somebody else to buy at a higher price um you know, there's not an intrinsic value that's going in that says that you know sydney property should be one of the most expensive in the world or you know melbourne property should be most expensive in the world so yeah I, I, you know i'm i don't know but yeah, I, I think 30, 32% is being too pessimistic. I've worn down my to say, you know, somewhere around 20, 25% is what I expect. Um, and it's going to be proportional to sort of what happens with migration. Did I make yeah, it less than 60 seconds? <laughs> You've done well. We, we've, we've met your contracted requirement to, to uh, complete a house price at least one, once every two or three episodes. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, to, for, for those of you who didn't miss, who missed the story, Commonwealth Bank released two scenarios this week. Uh, neither is positive, by the way. Their downturn scenario, which says uh, negative economic growth this year, I think it's slightly negative next year and then a bounce back in 2022. They expect house price declines about 11%. Or if there's a prolonged downturn that sees growth decline this year and again next year before coming back in 2022, price falls of up to 32%. So somewhere in that range is their expectation. 
they believe as a result they're adequately capitalized and that's the real uh, next impact or the second order impact is what happens to the bank's balance sheet. So I think for everybody's sake, other than maybe Docker wants to buy a cheap house, we hope it doesn't get quite that bad. Uh, but certainly economically, I mean, the other thing is if, if house prices get that bad, again, on the back of the economy being terrible for two straight years, uh, which would be phenomenally awful for unemployment and a whole lot of other stuff. So fingers crossed, uh, at least, uh, maybe we can give you the house price decline just on your house, Doctor, when you want to buy and everyone else can have their houses go up. Is that all right? What about all those people who have been pushed out of the market and haven't been able to buy? <laughs> you, you know, I, I think we should, you know, I really don't think house should be a pyramid where you buy one and then you make more money on the next one, make more, you know, house should be a place to live. It doesn't have to be expensive. I mean, we have the most expensive real estate in the world. There's no reason for it to be that way. Let's invest our capital somewhere else usefully instead of in wood. And that's the end of the 60 seconds. I actually don't disagree with you on the ladder, mate. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. All right, let's move on. Mate, well, it's, uh, it's not really a lot to say on this one unless you've got particular details to cover, but you've been regaling us on Skype during the week, in fact, during most weeks, uh, with a little, a little ditty or a little, a little kind of phrase you like to throw out there about uh, more companies raising more money, seemingly an endless line of companies raising money, and frankly, thus far, seemingly an endless line of people prepared to throw that money at them, which i, I got to say, look, I think I said to you, the guys, I'm pretty sure I did, a couple of weeks ago, look, you know, some of the companies were going early. We're raising capital early. So, well, if you're going to panic, panic early, panic while the money's there, raise the capital while it's available. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, Webjet and Flight Center maybe couldn't even get their capital raisings away. There was extended trading halts. It looks, for all intents and purposes, to me at least, and I won't put you in this category unless you self-elected to do that, um, it looked like this was kind of, you know, there wasn't much money around that these guys were going to struggle to get it. But ever since then, you know, once that was kind of done, and maybe because governments have been more... Uh, supportive, maybe because the economic circumstances or the, the regulatory circumstances have been a little bit more kind. There's plenty of money being thrown around. People like this this week, you, you gave me a list, Breville, Elmo Software, Mesoblast, the, the uh, biotech, Intertech Pivot, the fertilizer maker. I mean, these companies that A, you wouldn't necessarily expect would need capital in this circumstance, but B, are having seemingly no trouble raising it. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you know, I call this the quantitative easing. Money printing is producing a lot of money, which every company is just lapping. Um, and and in a world where you know you can't find, uh, you can't make money on bonds, you can't make money on this. So people are basically just putting money behind uh, com companies. Sometimes, you know, I also think it's a bit of an anchoring. Like you know, a lot of these companies probably have not. You know, some of these companies people have previously invested. They kind of always feel like you know that I'm obligated that I you know I can't get my stake diluted. You know, my stake will yeah. become less if I don't, you know, and then they put money in. But yeah, like, I mean, it doesn't seem to be a shortage of um, funds. It helps that it's uh, things like super where money automatically comes mm. out of super and, and, and therefore that money has to be invested somewhere. Yeah. Uh, that That is helping. But yeah, um, I, I, I too was of the impression that, you know, the, the people who go first are going to be the lucky ones to be able to raise capital, but it almost turns yeah, out. Yeah. Uh, that round that you know maybe if you wait and you wait for a bit of a bounce back in the stocks and things like that, you're getting a better deal than those people who went early in the early nervousness basically resulted in people you know being suspended and waiting and waiting you know although too you know the webjet example too too i mean some of those were like you know icu bed cases many of these other ones are not icu bed cases right like i mean these <laughs> yeah, were, uh, webjet was almost dying so yeah so that I think those situations result in more time. But I mean, you know, NAB didn't have any trouble raising money, right? I mean, yeah. it basically took money on one hand and then gave money on the other hand and people had no <laughs> issues with that. I always have issues with that. But, you know, that sounds bizarre to me. You just 
to me on this hand. I'll give you the dividend with the same money that I just raised from you. Thank you very much. Nice sideshow trick, isn't it, really? It, it is just such a, uh, it's like almost a, you know, like a magician. You take money from side, put the money there. So, anyways, yeah, but it's, it's interesting. It's all interesting. Kind of buying like a $3 lottery ticket and, and having a win because you get $10 back. It's like, you didn't really win. You know, <laughs> if you spent 20 bucks and you didn't yeah. win $10, you're still kind of behind. I still feel like a win, but you, you, you didn't really you're go forward on that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, I think I think it's uh, I think it's good actually. Capital. It, this I think the good thing from this is the capital markets are working. Yeah. Actually. Right. And if the capital markets were not working, I think that would raise a lot of alarm. So yeah, yeah. Um, it means that the capital markets are working. I think the you know the banks are still lending. So those are all good things. I think uh, then everybody will deal with the debt issues later on. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I've I, I've I mean look. Yeah. It's, I will say one thing very quickly on a slight tangent, well, exactly related, but, but a slight tangent. It's really, you made the point before that companies kind of, you know, people don't want to be deluded. There is a, there is something really deeply psychologically troubling for me about capital raisings for the way investors respond to them. No, I mean, I think the companies are taking advantage of it, but I don't necessarily blame them outright. The the, the idea that, we, you know, we've got 1,500 options on the ASX every single day, right? Between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. Sydney time, every single trading day, you can buy one of 1,500 different companies based on what you, you think they're worth, what their assessment of value. You can pick the very best one. You don't have to buy the, the 100th best, the 200th best, the 500th best. And yet when there's a capital raising, it has that really psychologically kind of railroading effect of saying, oh, well, uh, that company's raising money and let's take NAB because neither of us own it. NAB's raising money and they're offering me shares at this price. I guess I'll take advantage of that. And it's really that, you know, in no other circumstance... Would you ever, you know, would you ever get a, a share, one share a day quoted on the ASX? You know, if, if if tomorrow morning the only share quoted was NAB and you went, well, do I buy some or don't I? That's kind of what capital raisings are, right? They're literally saying to you, hey, ignore the alternatives. Here's a here's a letter. Just tick this box. Uh, be pay us some money or, or send us a check or you know send us direct debit or send it out of your broker's account. It, it's 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 like it's madness if you think. I don't mean this horribly critically, but the the, the Man, psychology is so. I know I talk about temperament psychology a heap, mate. But I, the more I talk about it, the more convinced I am that it's it's one of the really significant things that investors got to get their heads around. Because you know you're paying, you're giving NAB money because they simply said, "Hey, can I have some, please?" You went, "Oh, okay, I suppose so." It, if it, here's the, you know, just because you own it doesn't mean you should do it. Just because they're raising capital doesn't mean you should do it. Um, if you got a letter in the mail from Woolies tomorrow, you didn't know Woolies shares saying, "Hey, you want to buy some shares at you know five percent below the market price?" You'd be like. Why are they sending me this? If I wanted to, I'd just buy them on the market. I mean, you know, like mm. there's just something really deeply psychologically kind of screwy going on with capital raisings. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Yeah, it's 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 a, it's it's a, it's a fallacy in that sense, right? You're buying stuff that maybe you didn't want to buy. Yeah, and 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 just the the, the way it kind of loads our brain, kind of you know, kind of pre, it literally loads the gun for us. All you do is press the trigger, and I guess we might as well do it. There's, there's no first yeah. principles thinking about that at all. All right, I'll stop raising. Absolutely. And again, I'm not saying people shouldn't take capital raisings when they make sense. They absolutely should. But you've got to think about those capital raisings as if they were, and they could, because they are, as if they were, you know, is this the, my best idea right now for cash? If NAB shares at a discount are your literally very best idea, knock yourself out, take advantage of the capital raising. The odds that it is, given everything else you can buy, are so stupidly low, and yet a phenomenal number of shareholders take advantage of it. Drives me nuts. Anyway. 
let's move on. I, I want to talk, we, we're kind of just a, a really wide-ranging chat, which has been awesome. Let's talk, speaking of capital raising, speaking about kind of mad shareholders, uh, even the Queensland government wants to buy some of Virgin. And I've got to say, like, like shareholder capital raisings, I reckon you and I should just launch Doc and Scott Air and, and launch straight out capital raising. And we could probably get a couple of billion dollars from suckers right around the world who hear all of a sudden the airline wants some money and can't help themselves. When, you know, when every other business, you know, Webjet couldn't find the backers for weeks, right? All of a sudden there's, what, 20 different consortiums or individual companies that want to bid for Virgin. And it's like, I, I mean, I, I was going to say, I get it. I don't even really get it. But this is the thing about airlines, right? Everyone wants to own an airline. It's this trophy asset, this thing that everyone should somehow want to bid for. I can't remember the last time there was a, a, a sale or a liquidation where we had 20 businesses, 20 options, 20 consortia interested in bidding for, like, can you remember that when the last time that happened it was 20 bidders for any business, like any business? It just doesn't happen. No. And yet an airline goes broke. The airline's gone broke for starters. Like this is, this is a wonderfully performing company. Now, admittedly for, for you know, imposed reasons, but I just, I, I don't have the words for how flabbergasted I am that, that of all things, 20 people want to buy an airline that wouldn't be lining up to buy so many other great businesses or even struggling businesses, if it's law of averages. You'd get two, three, four maybe for the average failing business. Virgin fails and 20 people turn up and say, please take my money. I'm so rich. I don't want this money anymore. Please let me buy an airline and lose it. It drives me nuts. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, you know, even state governments want to uh, own uh, a part of the virgin pie, right? (laughs) (laughs) That is is truly bizarre, can I say. Why a state government? I I mean, they're doing it for political reasons. I want to keep the jobs and the headquarters in Brisbane. I kind of get that. But like the Australian government, I almost understand, right? The Australian government went, look, this thing's too cheap. We can borrow at 0.5%. We'll own it for three years, sell it. I don't think I necessarily love the idea, but I could almost get it. But a state government? I'm waiting for my local council to lob a bit. Maybe that's the next offer. Maybe maybe the you know the, the barrel shy council wants to lob a bid for 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 Virgin and really get the headquarters here. It's bizarre. Yeah, why not? Why, why not? Everyone else is. Was that? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Everyone else proposing. Why not? You know, the twenty first bid has arrived from. <laughs> yeah, I don't have anything to add to what you said. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, you know, airlines typically don't make money. Uh, you know, 90% of the airlines don't make money. It's a really hard business to run. Um, so, and I'm sure all these people are not doing this because they want, you know, two businesses, two airlines in Australia, and they want all the great things to happen to Australian right. uh, travelers, right? I'm sure that is not the reason. <laughs> so that everybody must think that they're going to make a lot of money off this. Um, uh, maybe, it's, maybe it's the fact that you're getting this at a distressed price is what is attracting, um, mm. attracting people. Um, maybe that's my, the only thing I can think of. But yeah, or lots of people think that they know how to run airlines. Man, how can it be, right? Everyone else has failed that except for Alan Joyce over the last 20 years. Maybe maybe I'm the one who can make it work. I don't know. Yeah, why not? Why not? (laughs) Let's move on. And let's let's do that. And I'm going to have to have another rant. Sorry. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, dude, this time I'm going to rant about superannuation. I'm not going to do it. Long, I'm going to try and be reasonably constrained and reasonably, no, I can't help myself. This bloody stupid policy from the government that people can access their super when they're giving out tens and hundreds and millions and billions of dollars to everyone else that walks and doesn't walk, that moves and doesn't move, 
And they said to people who are young, who, and we've got the numbers in a second, who have almost nothing, relatively speaking, in their super accounts, hey, how about you raid your future? How about you screw with your own retirement and, by the way, the future government balance sheet and welfare bill just because in this one instance, if you over there, you can have money. You over there, you can have money. You over there, you can have money. How much do you want? I'll, I'll add some zeros to the check. Oh, but you lot over there, no, no, raid your super, screw with the retirement savings of yourself, your family, screw with the retirement budgeting for future governments in 10, 20, 30, 40 years. The welfare bill will be hugely higher proportionally than it would have been had that not happened. Now, I've, I've ranted about that being stupid for a while. Here are the facts. 70% of people who took 10 grand out of their super because the government said they could have less than $50,000 in their account. In other words, 70% of the people who took advantage of this took out more than 20% of their superannuation funds. Now, 10 grand out of 50, you say, well, it's only 50, it's not much, only 10 grand, it's not much. The compound value of that over 40, 50, and 60 years, and yes, it's 60 years because you will still be drawing it down when you're 85, 90, 95, there'll still be superannuation there or there won't be now, there would have been. The compound cost of that is just stupidly high. It's easily 100 grand. It's probably closer to two or 300 grand in 60 years um, because the government didn't want to put its hand in its pocket when it's, you know, splashing cash all over the joint. A 10% uh, of GDP is the new budget deficit. And yet it's going to, you know, screw with the retirement savings of individuals, as I said, and the retirement budgeting, the welfare budget of us and our kids as taxpayers. I am, that, those numbers, I mean, I'm not surprised, mate, but man, they put in a stark relief, didn't they? Yeah, like, I mean, it's really sad because, like, I get it, people need money, but maybe they, they should be supported in different ways. Um, largely because I, th- I think if, you know, as you said, 20% is a large amount taken out. And, and if it's less than 50 grand, uh, and, you know, the, you know on average, you know, there's over 70% of the people are less than 40 or around the 40-year mark. I mean, to have a meaningful super in the next 20, 25 years, you'd have to really work really hard to accumulate in that and right. you're taking out 10 grand out of this. And you have the provision of take out another 10 grand, you know, that you have to remember that. That's basically right. you've rated your super by 50% almost. Um, and from that 50% or 40%, let's say, you, you've lost 20, 25 years of compounding. Man, um, so Which is just uh, insane. Yeah, it's, just, it's, it's, it's bizarre. It's very, uh, I mean, it's, it's one of those things which is good in the short term and really bad in the long term. <laughs> and yeah. really, really bad. And, you know, it's really hard. It's really hard to think, I mean, you know, from a to think long-term, right? The person taking it right now is taking yeah. it because they have to, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, and I'm sure some people are taking it because they can, but I, I would say that proportion is going to be small. But, but if you take it right now, you just don't realize watching out over that longer-term period. So, yeah. uh, and I think that's, yeah, so from a policy point of view, I think that's the problematic thing. Drives me mad, man. I just, I, look, I, I, I've given ScoMo some, some bouquets for some of the stuff that he and Josh Frydenberg have done. Um, none of it's perfect, but the broad relief packages have been about right and as fast as possible, given government, you know, uh, wheels move slowly. They've done some really great stuff to keep the economy afloat. Some of it belated. Uh, you know, I think the, the wage subsidy stuff was belated, but they got there and that's okay. And, you know, that's going to happen in these sort of environments. But this one is just a rolled gold disaster. All right, I'm going to stop ranting, mate. Otherwise, it'll be the rest of the podcast. Should we move on? Let's move on. Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, I want to address something that's in the paper today and, and listeners will probably have seen it by the time that we 
uh, they hear this. Hopefully they haven't actually seen it because I'm not sure that necessarily it's good for the average investor given the, 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 the news, the tone of the news, the, the scare, scariness of the news. David Tepper, who runs an investment firm in the US, has basically said shares are it's even more expensive. And this is the biggest stock bubble, he says, since 1999. Now, for those who remember, the NASDAQ, is it even back above the 99 levels, mate? <laughs> it took a very long time to get there, but it is. Um, it's, it, you know, the 99 bubble, particularly in tech stocks, was a phenomenal bubble. Probably, I don't know, a large we've seen in my lifetime, probably, certainly in my living memory, just the, the, the sheer exuberance and then crash after that. That's a hell of a comparison for David Tepper to make. Now, he's saying... Valuations on some individual stocks on the NASDAQ are, quote, nuts, <laughs> straightforward. And the AFR reports that Tepper's remarks, and I'm quoting now, echo those of Stan Druckenmiller, who said yesterday the risk-reward calculation for equities was the worst he'd seen in his career, end quote. Uh, that's, um, <laughs> that's, that's some pretty stern words from people who are well-regarded, Stanley Druckenmiller in particular is one of those names that people can't help but listen to. He's been around for, I don't know how old he is, but he's been around forever. It's one of those names that even if you don't kind of know exactly what he did, you know he's someone who's been around and is mentioned in dispatches as someone worth listening to. That's a that's a pretty scary, you know, given the markets, yes, it's bounced back a little bit from its post-February post lows, still down meaningfully, and he's saying now, it's a bubble now, it's the worst since 1999. Now, to be fair, I think Tepper's saying, some stocks, um, but but maybe as a result, the whole market might be. Um, Tepper said, here we go, people have to be very careful about some of these smaller NASDAQ names that are just nuts. Some are, quotes, ridiculously overvalued. What do you say, mate? Well, look, so I actually don't pay too much attention to the market as a whole. Um, I've all, one of the things I've decided, found very useful to do is when people like these say things are overvalued and so on, I think I should go and look at what those smaller names are that they're avoiding. Um, and the re reason I do that is if they're avoiding it, maybe that's an opportunity to buy. And it sounds counterintuitive, <laughs> but if, if, everybody's, if everybody's buying something, then that's not good. When a lot right. of these people are saying this is something not to buy, maybe there is something interesting there. Oh, what I would say is that I think a lot of it, so uh, Tepper, I think, is, you know, quote-unquote, be classified as a classic value investor. A lot of these people, and I shouldn't, I don't know, these does, sounds, doesn't sound the right, right word, but a lot of classic value investors, I think, are having, have had trouble investing over the last decade or decade. The reason they've had investing is that they, they're unwilling to adapt their models and their way of investing. And, and the, the best way I, I, I think about this is, if you're a classic value, if you're taking a classic value investing um, approach, where you're saying, okay, you know, I want to estimate the future share price, future earnings, I want to, you know, model it, then I'm going to apply a free cash flow, uh, you know, discounted free cash flow model to it. The problem is, I think the market is extremely efficient at that end of uh, investing, supremely uh, efficient, and the reason it is is the computer can do what you know the classic value investing will do, probably do it better. Uh, the quant algorithms can do it better. Um, and therefore, you it's really hard for me to think that somebody who's buying a, you know, a 30, 40, 50 billion dollar plus business, which is, you know, which is going to gush some cash, valued in the classic way, uh, you know, which is never going to grow, you know, at some slow and steady rate. How do you find an edge there? You can't, right? 
you're better off just buying the index. And that's why, you know, there's this movement towards the index. So I think if you want to invest and you want to do better than the index, you have to find something where, you know, um, all these guys think, oh, it's expensive or it's not good or it's, you know, it's, it's a bubble um, and, and so on and so forth. So I think that that's where the opportunity is because those are the harder ones if you have to try to figure out, you know, what the opportunities are and so on. So I think... I, I, you know, like I'll use Buffett as an example, you know, how do you be the best investor and lose over a decade? Clearly, you're not the best investor for the last decade if you lose to market as an example, right? Now, I've heard the counter arguments being that, well, you know, think about the type of investing somebody is doing if they're, you know, taking a float and investing that float, um, you know, basically recycling the float money and their goal is to get six or 7% returns. Well, you know, if that's a defined return, then that's fine, right? So if your goal is to get 6 7%, maybe you can invest that way and the Buffett approach works or the Tepper approach works, or you could just be um, 500 as an example if they think of that as the market, right? You could do that. Um, and, and that's fine if that's the goal. So I think, I, I, think there's a, I think there's a disconnect among some people in terms of trying to figure out um, economic change, what, you know, so I call it like, you know, if you invest in investing in the 19th or 20th century type of businesses, you will, you will find the 21st century businesses really uh, expensive because they're not going to be, um, you know, traditionally, they're not going to have a PE of 18, either, you know, or which, you know, PE of whatever you think your bank should be at um, because, you know, you just have to think about what they're doing now and what they're going to do in the future. So you could call it speculative investing, you can call it growth investing, whatever you want. But I think the the bubble category really belongs there. And I think that the rest of the market uh, is, is extremely efficient. It's therefore very difficult, uh, in my opinion, to consistently deliver higher returns than that. Um, you know, in some cases you can, but, you're, but it's really hard. I, I think you need to have a difference in opinion. I think when everybody says, don't look at that, oh, that's too hard, I think that's an opportunity. Um, you know, the, another classic example I like giving is, um, you know, the returns difference between, say, Apple and Google over the last 10 years, right? If you asked anyone 10 years ago, they would all bet on Google, right? But if everybody bets on Google, Apple is the opportunity. Everybody's betting on Google because network you know, effects are going to work and so on. So I think the classic, following a classic model uh, with no change is is a risk, in my opinion. So now, that's not really a commentary on valuation, but it's more of a commentary on, I think, where people get caught up on, oh, that's expensive or that's expensive, you know? Um, as an example, right? You know, if, if people, you know, people did not invest in Apple because it's the hardware company, right? And hardware returns can't be good. That's an opportunity. In my view, that is where the opportunity is. Similarly, people will not invest in that car company because that is the car company which everybody hates. Well, that is an opportunity for those people who are willing to look past that. So I think- This is GM you're know, talking about, the car company? Uh, well, whatever that car company is. Without <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, we, well, the, the, I think the opportunity always, the opportunity for superior, uh, you know, multi-bagging returns is going to come on looking differently, right? And you can't get that in by buying Coca-Cola. Right, so I think that's 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 the view. I don't think that's where you know I think Tepper or Buffett, I think, are wrong. Um, is is that the computers have solved that problem? You might as well just give your money to a computer, which is basically giving it to the index. So that's my viewpoint. Very good. I, I will I will say too for those listeners who are listening that you don't, you know, I don't want our listeners to think that you only buy you you never consider valuation, right? Because you do. So it's really important to to note that you're kind of drawing the contrast here. Not that I need to defend you or, or paint you in a particular way. You're more the capital of doing that yourself. But there are there are growth companies you wouldn't buy because they're simply too expensive or businesses that you think 
you know, where the growth might be over. So it's not a case of just saying there's Buffett-type stocks and non-Buffett-type stocks or Tepper or whoever, and therefore all growth stocks are good, therefore you can buy all growth stocks. Or that maybe there are some NASDAQ stocks potentially that are overvalued in certain circumstances. Not that, again, I'm not defending Tepper either, but it's not just about saying is a traditional P of 14, 15 like a Tepper would want. But on the other hand, you're not just saying, well, anything that's growing is good and just throw your money at it and see what sticks. You're still going through and saying, does this price seem reasonable based on a whole lot of other things as well? So there is, there is no, you're not a value investor in any way, shape or form. You're not any price for any growth company, right? Yeah, no, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying there's a price for everything and there's not, you know, you, you want to still... You, you want to steal price for which you're going to get a return, right? So you have to right. decide what the future uh, the future value is going to be. Well, all I'm saying is that often things that people look away from are where I think the biggest yeah, opportunities no. are going to be. Now, of course, you, if, you pick, if you pick everything that everybody is looking, you know, looking away from, then you're going to get you know, a basket of things and it's going to deliver poor returns. You have to pick and choose there. Right, right, right. Uh, you know, like if everybody thinks, uh, you know, a classic example might be afterpay, right? I can say that, oh, it's got all these problems and therefore, you know, it's not investable. Well, that maybe is an opportunity as an example, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, right? And, you know, maybe one afterpay is going to be wrong. Uh, but if you can do that well and consistently, I think then, you know, that's expensive, that's broken, and that doesn't work, I think is where I personally think now the most of the opportunity is largely because, again, I think that everything else, like a Woolies, you should not be able to buy a Woolies at, a, you know, at, with most of the other things, you're going to get plus or minus 1% of the index is what I think. It should wow. happen because it should be really easy for the computer uh, and the algorithms and the machine learning to actually figure it out. Right, um, so you're going to get plus one minus one percent, uh, right? But for the for the, if you want more than that, then you have to look differently, uh, right? And maybe this will also disappear because you know eventually the computers will also figure this out, uh, and then we're all in trouble. <laughs> I, I actually, I guess I slightly disagree with that 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 view of the latter in the sense that there's ample evidence that even the big cap companies are massively volatile share price wise. Not not they're not going to ten bag and they're not going to fall ninety percent, but if you look at a Woolies, you know, or a Coles um, over the last 12 months, 18 months, the price the price variance is probably, I mean, it's probably a bad example to use the last 12 months because COVID's in between. But if you go back to 2019, for example, go as a year, there'd be times that I'm pretty sure there'd be swings of 20, 25, 30% on many, maybe even most large cap companies. I'm not entirely sure the market's as efficient as you think it is at the top end. Um, but I also take your point. It's not going to give you multi-bag returns on Woolies anytime soon. Woolies is not a, a $2 stock masquerading as a $40 stock or vice versa. Yeah, so, so the thing, okay, uh, sci-fi. What I was talking about is if you if somebody wants to buy as a long-term investor and buy and hold for the long-term, let's say five years, right? Yeah. A stock like Woolies, in my view, is unlikely to give you higher return than a plus minus 1% of what the market has, market has done. That's my point. Now, it doesn't mean that if, now, the way to make money off Woolies, for example, in my view, would be that you can be very valuation conscious and be do your valuation properly, and then you're actually going to buy when you think it's undervalued and the sell when it's overvalued, right? You'll have to trade. That, in my view, you have to trade Woolies, is what right. I'm saying, to make money off Woolies, right? And to give my, to make a case, I said that five years ago, on 15th of May, Woolies share price was $29. Right. Today, after pandemic boost, Woolies share price is $35. Right. Basically, I've not made much money off Woolies if you're going to hold Woolies, right? So that's my point. My point, but but I, I do agree with what you're saying, right? I mean, in this period, the share price has gone all over the place. And because you can value this thing properly, you can actually make some money by exploiting the short-term volatility. 
So you're exploiting short-term volatility by valuation. I think that is possible, um, right? Because it's going to be down somewhere like, you know, 21 bucks. If you bought at 21 bucks, you made some money now. Now's the time to sell. Then you come back when it's again, maybe at 21 bucks. It's an example. I'm not saying that people should sell with these. I have no opinion. But my opinion is that on these large cap stocks, you can make money largely yeah. by, uh, you know, looking at valuation and you're buying, you basically buy low, sell high. Again, buy low, sell high. And that's not, it's not, I think these stocks, Right, and the and the exceptions to rule would be where there had you know people have made wrong estimates about, traders have made wrong estimates about total opportunity, right? So if, if something is wrong about that estimate, then of course you can make, um, you know, and the chance of being wrong on that estimate is really high for disruptive businesses, right? It's lot not that high for non-disruptive businesses because you know, those true. businesses are much much easier to to yeah. model, right? Now of course there could be a large cap business like a large cap. Uh, Google is disruptive business, right? So, you know, you might not have expected at the very beginning when you bought this that you're going to get into this, you know, uh, YouTube, or they're going to get into that, or they're going to make, you know, those not so good pixel phones and things like that, right? So those are things that may not have been incorporated. But those examples, I think, are not that many, right? If you pick the Woolies and the Colts, those are perfectly tradable stocks in my view, but not like long-term buy-to-hold stocks. Very good. Mate, uh, for some reason, your, your audio mucked up then. And when you said excellent pixel phones, it came through, it was not so good. But just, just for, for clarification, I'll, I'll just confirm for our audience that you did say excellent <laughs> pixel phones. Uh, all right, mate. Let's, uh, let's, I reckon we've got time for one quick mailbag and then we'll, then we'll call it quits for today. We will be back on Sunday. Surprise, surprise, with our mailbag episode. Doc, here's the question from Sam, which I kind of liked um, it, on our airline theme. I think I'm pretty sure I know what your view is going to be, but let's, uh, let's see. He says, hi, Scott and Doc. Love the podcast. I was wondering what sectors in particular are lighting up as good buy opportunities during the coronavirus. I was surprised to hear Doc diss airline shares so much on a recent podcast. I get they're capital heavy, exposed to a lot of risk politically and internationally, and depend on oil heavily. That's a decent, decent, you're making your own case here, Sam. But they are interesting companies. And I know you've both back-traveled companies before. He says, I subscribe to Extreme Opportunities. Thanks, Doc. I see them as having been some of the biggest losers in recent times. And although it will be uncertain times ahead, surely we'll be back in the air within a few years. So why wouldn't you want to invest in airlines and travel stocks right now? I'm interested in companies like Webjet, Qantas and Virgin, Air New Zealand, and even the Jets ETF, which invests in airlines and airports and has holdings in Delta, United and Southwest, etc. But then I heard Doc say you wouldn't want to end up with holdings in Delta. So I'm curious. Thanks, Sam. All right, Doc. Sam's put you on the spot here, mate. Come on. This is the value proposition play, right? This is the things are so bad right now. Surely when things improve, there's going to be money to be made in the airline stocks, isn't there? Yeah, so so I actually answered this question just in the previous, you know, my monologue rant, right? <laughs> so if you're the type of investor who can perfectly value, uh, let's say Delta, and you believe that this intrinsic value is 30 bucks and it's currently selling for 15 bucks, you can buy it. But you got to remember, this is not that type of business. This is not an apple that you buy and you hold for a decade and you reap the benefits of compounding. That's not this type of business. You buy the you buy the Delta stock at ten bucks and you sell it at fifteen as promptly as you can. And remember, you're not going to catch the top on that thing. This is not. So I think right. I guess what I'm distinguishing is I invest in compounders, um, businesses that compound for a very long time because then I don't really need to lift my finger and do too many things. If yeah, right. there's nothing nothing wrong with investing with any of these businesses, 
as long as you're good at valuation, you can figure exactly what the value, which you have to be good at valuation, right? Remember, you're competing with machines, right? Uh, so you have to be good at valuation. You have to have a very good mental framework to buy when everybody's saying this thing is going to die. Right. right. So, you know, you buy Webjet at $1.70 if you can, and then you sell it at whatever price you think is the appropriate price to sell it. Uh, right. Or you do the same thing, but you have to have the mental fortitude to do it at that time. You have to have the valuation discipline to be able to sell at the right time. So, so what, I've, what I've learned, what my point is that as an investor, you've got to learn what type of investor you are. Right. Yeah. And I figured that I am not the investor who can figure out to the penny, this is valuation this much for Woolworths and therefore I'm going to pay that much and therefore I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to then watch the share price like a hawk and have all these, you know, alerts come to me, oh, it's at this price and I got to sell, right? And then what if I didn't, you know, uh, you pick the valuation and you have to write and then the shares keep rising. There's a lot of mental things. You have to be really good at it. Some people really play that game very well. Um, yeah. This is just not my game. So I refuse to play the game, which is why I said that, you know, I, I'm not really interested in turnaround stories. I'm not really interested in value plays because I would get trapped in the value. Somebody else will not, right? right. And I, nobody's going to write to me, like, you know, nobody's going to give me preferred shares. So, you know, right this at this point, if somebody gave me preferred shares of something at some really cheap discount and I stood at, you know, the head of the hierarchy in terms of the mm -hmm. receiver, you know, the rights to the properties and, you know, confess to getting the plane so that I can park one behind my uh, unit or something like that, um, <laughs> then I would be, then I would be, you know, diagnosed. it's just, it's just investing preference. There's nothing wrong with, you know, I like, like I love Qantas at the right price. It's probably a good investment. It's just not my type of investment. Is I guess what I mean. Oh, so that's a good summary, mate. I so I have my two bobs worth before we wrap up. Mate, I, I think you are right. The, the, the risk, as you say, or the risk you've already laid out are exactly the risks, right? So at some point, you have to work out whether. So, so you're looking at you're looking at future earnings power in any of these businesses. So to Doc's point, you can simply put it on the sidelines, which he's done. And I, I probably, frankly, have done largely as well. Particularly the airlines themselves. You want to look at the the underlying earnings power of the business to say, right, at some future point how profitable I think they're going to be and then how much do I want to pay for that given two things. One, I need to wait for that. So there is time value of money, right? A dollar now is not worth the same as a dollar in five years time. So you want to make sure you're not paying too much for the next 12 months worth of earnings, which are probably not going to be earnings, going to be losses. Um, the other thing is you have to make sure the company's going to make it through, right? There was a, I mean, you mentioned Virgin. We know Virgin's gone to the wall already. It'll be reborn, but frankly, shareholders will end up with almost exactly nothing, if not literally exactly nothing. Um, you know, maybe Qantas go, is fine. Maybe it has to raise capital. And if it raises capital again, the share price may well halve from here. Similarly with Webjet or any of the flight center, same sort of thing. You will see potentially some of these businesses struggle because they may not make it through at all. I mean, they, they may go broke or they may have massively dilutive capital raisings. Um, the return to profitability might take much longer than you expect. So it's it's it kind of depends on the view. I think what I would say, Sam, is just be a little bit careful. I'm, I've been guilty of this, by the way, of seeing lower share price saying, man, when it bounces back, I'm going to make a fortune. Sometimes it does. Afterpay, we already said, went from 43 to 9 and then back to 44, right? If you bought it 9 bucks, you're a, you're a genius. Um, so, you know, it, it does happen. Now, on the same token, Kathmandu fell from $2.70 to $0.90 cents and is still there. So, again, not, I'm not saying which, you know, either of those businesses could be double or half by year end. But just remember, just because it's fallen doesn't mean it's going to necessarily bounce back. Um, that's, I get the interest. The problem over time, Sam, is that these are not great businesses. Um, the airline industry in Australia, I saw a, 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 a phrase in the AFR the other day, and this is this is not exactly fair on Qantas, but Rex, the little regional airline that operates in New South Wales and Queensland predominantly, um, has made more money over the last six years than Qantas and Virgin combined. 
And you think about that now, to be fair, that's because Virgin's lost a heap and Qantas has made a bit. Um, but, you know, the, the reality of airlines is over the long term, these guys lose a fortune and always have. Maybe sometime, maybe it's now it's different. That was Buffett's view, by the way. Now it's different. So he bought the airline stocks and then sold them again in March, I think it was, um, because he simply said, look, I don't know. Again, same thing. How much money do these guys require? How long can they go for? What does profitability look like? We just don't know. And so it is a speculative investment. Even as a value play, you have to speculate because you have to take a leap of faith, believing that the recovery in terms of timing, in terms of the amount of recovery we get, i.e., to Doc's point about Disney theme parks, how long, how, does it, how, how fast do we need to get back to that point? That's a tough thing to do. So, yeah, look, if you said to me in five years' time, Qantas is worth five times today's price, I'd say, oh, cool, I'm not surprised, but that's good. If in five years' time you said to me, Qantas is half of today's price, I'd be like, okay, yeah, that seems reasonable. Um, there's just it, It's very, very hard to know and very hard to forecast what the future might look like. So, as Doc said, you have to... Like, and frankly, like the way Doc invests with growth companies, if you're going to play value traps, you have to, or value companies, you have to do it at scale as well because even if you're right more often than not, the individual case could be, well, a, a negative or a loser rather than the average, which still might be, might be a winner. So just, just be a little bit careful uh, when it comes to that. Airports, similarly, uh, Sydney Airport holds a truckload of debt. Maybe the planes start flying sooner than later or maybe it has to go back to the market for more capital. And remember, every time it does that, it dilutes your ownership. Doc's made the point before, Webjet effectively now has twice as many shares. That means even when it gets back to the previous level of profitability, the profit per share is going to be half what it used to be because it's simply more people to share it amongst. Any more on that, Doc? No, sir. Fools, that is it for this Friday for our regular Motley Full Money podcast. But as I've already said, we will be back on Sunday. So please come and join us. Between now and then, why don't you join Doc? at Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities. It's a service he runs with Kevin and they do a spectacular job. The sorts of investing style you've heard about today, the sorts of companies we've talked about, the growth companies that is, not the Qantas companies or the Woolies, uh, they're the businesses that Doc and Kevin spend all day, every day looking for and trying to bring to our members. There was a brand new recommendation out just this past Wednesday, so it's not too late to go and grab some shares of that. I won't give the name away because Doc had killed me and his members wouldn't be very happy. But go and join it, Doc, at Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities. Get a good deal by going to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. That's EO for Extreme Opportunities. Fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. Get your share of Doc and Kevin's goodness. These are the businesses they are expecting to be the leaders, the innovators, the growers, the success stories, even the multi-baggers of tomorrow. You really want to get on board. And as I said last time, and I'll say every time I probably... It's just bloody cheap. Like when you think about the money you're going to spend on EO, it's just t- like you couldn't buy a pair of jeans for that. And, you know, think about the the value you're going to get from a, from a recommendation or two that Doc and Kevin give you. I reckon it's money for jam. Now, as always, we can't guarantee anything in the future. This is a financial services product, so we should probably disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer around it. But have a go. Have a look. Have a look at that page at fool.com.au slash EO podcast for all the terms and conditions. Mate, that's it. But before we go, our listeners can and should subscribe to the Triple A Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes or your favourite Android podcast app if you're using one of those excellent Pixel phones. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a rating, throw us some stars. Five would be lovely if you would be so kind. Please also leave us a review and tell your friends. More foolishness is going to help the world go around, let's be honest. And, of course, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash Triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of Foolish Insight. Fool on.
Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.